Hello and welcome to Interpreting India. I'm Srinath Raghavan and this is a podcast presented by Carnegie India. Every week we bring to you voices from India and around the world as we unpack the role of technology, the economy and foreign policy in shaping India's relationship with the world. In the wake of the recent coronavirus outbreak, we are now recording and producing episodes of Interpreting India remotely. So please bear with us if there are any issues with sound quality. It's been 7 weeks since the government announced a nationwide lockdown to tackle the coronavirus pandemic. In the recently begun third phase of this lockdown, there is a cautious but phased attempt to allow essential economic activity to resume gradually. Nevertheless, the shock to the country's formal and informal economies continues to be enormous and the extended lockdown has turned the spotlight on the stark social and economic fault lines in our country most notably in the pitiable plight of migrant workers caught out by the crisis difficulties in accessing healthcare the economic brunt of the lockdown and a lack of proper awareness of the pandemic have made india's poor a particularly vulnerable group the government's actions have been energetic but have they also been effective in managing the trade offs between containing the pandemic and providing support to the poorest and the most vulnerable what can the government do to mobilize existing infrastructure and resources in order to address the situation and more importantly to ensure that the relief reaches the neediest what kinds of problems and fissures within our welfare architecture does the current crisis cast into relief to discuss these issues and more we have with us today professor ritika khera Professor Khera is one of India's leading development economists. She is an associate professor of economics at the Indian Institute of Management in Ahmedabad. Her research interests lie in public support programs of the government, especially those relating to health and nutrition, food security and employment. Professor Khera has published in a wide range of international peer-reviewed research journals, magazines, newspapers and online portals. Ritika, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Now it's been about seven weeks since the government announced a nationwide lockdown, and I wanted to begin by getting your sense on how you see the overall situation since the lockdown has begun. I feel that the government could have done much better in terms of planning for it. Yeah, uh, especially as we have seen the situation of workers in cities, many of them migrants, but also non-migrant resident workers. Uh, I think that's been quite devastating to see all across the country. Um, and I've been trying to make sense of this for myself. Like, how is it possible that the government didn't anticipate or plan for this? One option I feel is that maybe they just didn't realize that, uh, in fact, this is like fifty to seventy percent of the population that's living in these kinds of conditions. Uh, and then the other one is that they did understand, but they they didn't care. Uh, I would say. I mean, there's no lack of sensitivity in the uh, from the side of the government as far as other people are concerned. So, for instance, you know, Prakash Javadekar, who is the Minister of Information and Broadcasting, he said a few days uh, into the lockdown that you know they were going to start playing Ramayan uh, because they were concerned about. 
people who were with their families stuck in their homes. So, you know, so there is this kind of ability to be sensitive to people's needs, uh, but clearly not for everyone. So I think for me, that's been the, really the, the, the puzzling part, but also a very disappointing part of the lockdown. Now, you've referred to the current crisis uh, arising out of the coronavirus pandemic as effectively a triple crisis, right? There is an economic side to it. There is a public health dimension to it. But there is also a humanitarian angle to it, which has come to light. And, you know, one of the things that crises typically do is to, you know, they they kind of cast light on the structures of our society. They They show us from somewhat an oblique angle how things actually are. So I was just wondering if you could just walk us through these various dimensions of the crisis and how do you think we have fared in terms of our response when it comes to each of them? Right. Okay, so we should probably start with the health uh, health crisis, right? Now sure. that is clearly, uh, by and large, I would say uh, not of the government's doing uh, because it came from outside uh, and... And of course, the government could have done more in terms of, you know, starting screen, uh, not just screening, but actually testing uh, maybe in January or even earlier. Um, but I think that uh, that is something that many governments, even uh, better, you know, better governments have been caught off guard across the world. Um, as far as the health part is concerned, I think many countries that did go into lockdown eventually, they have used that lo- this lockdown period also to beef up their health facilities and their preparedness for the uh, the possibility of many more cases coming. I am somehow not very confident that we have used this this like five uh, week period. Uh, very well to improve our preparedness. I think it's very uneven across the uh, across the country. Uh, so some states are clearly doing much more than other states. Uh, but I do feel a bit disappointed how long it took for the government to allow private labs to start testing and how much of a controversy that created, especially around pricing. Uh, and then, of course, there's the the controversy around PPE. Uh, and apparently, there was some tender which didn't go out in time, and uh, there was some hanky panky uh, allegedly going on uh, there as well. India spends one percent of its GDP. Uh, our public expenditure on health is one percent of our GDP, which is way too low, right? And a lot of development economists have been crying themselves hoarse for years now, like really years, decades, uh, saying that we must increase this much more. And just to put it in perspective, countries like France and Germany, they spend between 8 to 10 percent of their uh, GDP on healthcare. So I think that's again one reason why we should have used our uh, five weeks better, knowing that our facilities are poorer than elsewhere, knowing that the uh, health of the population, is, you know, a large chunk of it is undernourished. Uh, so it, that that factor may counter the age advantage that our population has. And there is also a problem in terms of uh, unevenness of the existing public healthcare infrastructure itself. I mean, there is a clear divide between rural India and urban India. 
Yes, there is a rural urban divide and there is a South India versus North India divide as well, very loosely speaking. Uh, if you look at NFHS data, for instance, in states like even Himachal, Himachal in the north is one of the few states where public health facilities tend to be people's first choice, even that may be changing now. Uh, but we know generally that the southern states do better. Uh, and then, of course, there's the rural-urban divide where I think what happened is in the, not in these past five years, but the decade or so before that, physical infrastructure for health in rural areas did improve under the NHRM, the National Rural Health Mission. But the the staffing of these health centers is still very, like, you know, very disappointing. There are hardly any doctors, there are hardly any nurses, so that is really a huge crunch uh, that we face as far as the health sector is concerned. GDP growth can come from a whole bunch of things, right? It can come from building flyovers and highways, but uh, GDP growth can also come from having more doctors, nurses, um, and teachers, and Anganwadi workers, and ASHA workers, etc. All these things will also contribute to GDP growth. But somehow our obsession with, uh, you know, the physical infrastructure and even fighter planes for that matter, which bugs me to no end, uh, never allowed us to pay attention to this uh, big gap in the human resources for health and education especially. And I'm afraid we pay the price for it. You know, yeah. workers who are who they work as volunteers, they're still considered volunteers. They're frontline workers doing very important work, and they're getting paid between one and three thousand rupees in most North Indian states, and I think in some southern states they get a bit more than that, like up to five thousand rupees per month. So, so this is the kind of thing that I feel like in going ahead, I I would like to see a remedy. Now, coming to the economic crisis, again, this is something that uh, possibly the government was caught off guard, like many other countries in the world, uh, because everything has had to come to a standstill. Uh, perhaps the lockdown could have been more great or something like that, but I, I don't really want to comment on that. But I do hope that people now will uh, use this as an opportunity to re rethink and reset some of our priorities, right? So I would certainly like to see the health sector getting much more attention from the government and not just in terms of health insurance, uh, uh, getting health insurance like RSBY or Ayushman getting more money, but more primary health care, preventive health care facilities need to be um, substantially improved. So what's happened is that you know a lot of laborers go from rural areas to urban areas to work because there are hardly any opportunities in urban uh, sorry in rural areas for them, right? And now what's happening is that a lot of these young men generally, but also women, have started going back home uh, to rural areas. So it's going to be like a double whammy for those in rural areas, right? Because they were relying on remittances from these family members, and that's going to dry up. Uh, and what we're noticing in April, of course, for the first three weeks, it was primarily due to the lockdown, but employment under the National Rural Employment Guarantee Act crashed to uh, its lowest ever in the past five years, if you look at it month by month. 
So at a time when actually it should have been even more than usual, right? Because there are all these people coming home or at least the earnings from that sort have dried up for so many people. So I think that part really need, uh, needs much more um, money from the government. And just to go back to the announcement that was made on 26 March when Nirmala Sitaraman, when she announced the relief package, actually for NREG workers, there was nothing, right? Because she said 20 rupees a day, the wage is going to go up. But that's an annual exercise. Every year around March or so, uh, wages are revised upwards to take into account inflation. So that increase was only a routine exercise and people will only get that money if they actually give them work, right? So so I think that's one other area that needs a lot of attention right now. And then the humanitarian crisis I've actually, in a sense, already talked about before, that if it is entirely of the government's fault, right? It was created by the government. If they were anticipating this kind of lockdown, very stringent lockdown, I would have imagined that you would give people a five-day window and tell them beforehand that, look, either you go home or don't worry, you don't need to panic, we're going to take care of you while you're in these cities. And I think a lot of people don't understand that for many of them, they literally, they on a, on a day-to-day basis, on a week-to-week basis, right? They don't have staying power like us. So when this lockdown happened, and I think many people have said it now, in essentially the government was plugged into conversations of the developed world where a very large part of the population is in salaried employment. And here in India, it's only 17% of the employed who are in salaried employment. So for us, it works really well, right? Because we have salaries, we're going to cut, and we have savings too. Uh, and our homes have running water and enough space. So for us, the lockdown, and I think this is like about 30% of the Indian population, it works really well. But for 70%, it's really like a death sentence, right? Because you're, you're, killing off their employment opportunities and leaving them in a place where they have hardly any social network to be able to survive. Uh, their landlords are throwing them out even of their accommodation. I mean, that's that, that, and that's where you see them walking these hundreds, even thousands of miles at times um, trying to get home. So I think for that, the government should really, I think still not too late to remedy those mistakes. But in fact, what we see is more and more insensitivity from the government. Like, you know, now most recently they're being charged to go home uh, by the railways and perhaps even a little bit extra. You know, given that there's this kind of a scale of return migration, which has happened as you're talking, uh, and it seems looking at various kinds of news reporting and other reports which have been, uh, which are coming through, that a lot of people who are going back are really not minded to return back to their you know, urban sources of employment in the short run, at least. Uh, There is a general uh, sense amongst people who left that they left in circumstances which were not just very difficult, but also in some ways which affronted their dignity. A lot of them who have stayed back have said that, listen, the mere fact that we have had to rely on charity to get our daily meal, uh, in a sense, undercuts our own uh, sense of our identity. 
as people who are capable of standing on our own feet and working. So in a sense, uh, it seems that we are not going to see any kind of a return to the normal pattern of migrant workers coming back. Now, obviously, that will have implications for all parts of the Indian economy. We have always said that India is a labor abundant country and labor is our advantage. And so we just treat it as an economic resource. But I think that labor is also human being, right? They are human beings and they are rights bearing people. Absolutely. And I think that has just, that narrative really must change with this crisis. And I hope that you know, this kind of uh, line that you get from people who do write on these issues, you know, that the labor laws are too stringent and that is what is throttling in the Indian industry and Indian competitiveness and Indian ease of doing business and all of that. I mean, obviously, those things have value, but I feel that you have to invest in your labor, even if you don't think of them as human beings. Uh, and I I really do. I mean, I've been thinking and trying to read a little bit also around the Second World War, where a lot of these massive changes came about in the Western European countries, right? Where a lot of the a lot of labor was better organized and was able to better assert their rights and to get social security uh, provisions. So, what happens moving forward from now, I think, depends on the extent to which these laborers, migrants, or otherwise are able to organize themselves and make their value known to that whole ecosystem, to the economic process, and demand to be respected going forward. Kind of hope that I have is that both industry and government will realize the value of all of these laborers. Uh, in sustaining the economy and in sustaining our lives. Of course, the problem is that, you know, when you have informalization of this scale, uh, the organized sort of ways of getting people together to get their collective bargaining power, like, you know, labor unions, etc., don't really, you know, operate to anything beyond the formal sector, right? Which, which accounts only for a very small percentage of That's our right. workforce. So, and any law that you create is always going to be circumvented in the informal sector. And many states have, you know, minimum wage laws and so on, right? But, I mean, they, they are only honored in the breach, even in uh, those parts of our economy, which you think of as closer to the formal rather than the informal sector. But I, you know, I feel that if we don't try, then we're never going to get there, right? Sure. And I think that a lot of people, you know, you see a lot of this discussion of charity by X or Y, industrial house, etc., I feel that they should commit to saying that we, we will work for a better future. And if one person or one industrial house takes the lead, then it will also create pressure in society. You know, that the norm, will, the social norm will change. Think about how child labor, you know, the debates around child labor have gone. It initially, of course, everyone will try to circumvent the law. But eventually, from repeated efforts and going on trying, uh, now it's not really, I mean, it continues to exist. I'm not saying it's gone away entirely, but at least it's understood that you can't have, that there's something wrong about that. Absolutely. So, I think you're absolutely right, which is that you just not need legal change, but social norms around these things also have to go. Yeah. And both of them feed into each other. That legal, a legal uh, enactment can have some, create a, one kind of pressure. It gives these, the laborers a tool in their hand to fight with. 
Absolutely. And we know that from other, you know, various kinds of legislations which have come up for rights, forest rights yes. Act and so on. Yes. Right? So, uh, but I want to come back to the earlier point that you made about the National Rural Employment Guarantee Act. Uh, because in the current context, it seems that it, that is going to be a, a very important vehicle through which some degree of shelter and relief can be provided to the, you know, those who are most vulnerable. So to speak. And uh, you have suggested that, you know, the government can make, say, advance payment for about you know, uh, 30 days of work uh, to people. Uh, but there is also a larger question, which is that, uh, you know, can people really get that much of employment if social distancing norms remain in place? So in a sense, you know, is, is work going to get restarted? But uh, but what do you think are the avenues of really using NREGA in the current context? And what more can the government do to really, uh, you know, prop up uh, more support to the poorest and the neediest through that particular vehicle? Right. So I think one uh, one thing to appreciate in the 26 March relief package was that they immediately doubled the amount of rations that people would get through the public distribution system. Mm-hmm. Uh Although (laughs) we are now saying that that should be universalized because, you know, the National Food Security Act, what it did was it made access available to two thirds of the population. That's right. And because the government at that time used 2011 population projections to decide coverage, in fact, today, only 60 percent of the population is covered by the Food Security Act. So the PDS system is available only to 60 percent of our population. That's right even though legally it should be covering 66%. And what we are saying today is that because the government has these insane amount of food stocks with them, 77 million tons, um, which is two and sorry three and a half times their buffer stock norms, we are saying at least for one year, you issue temporary one-year ration cards to the remaining 40% of those whoever is willing to come, whoever wants it. Yeah. And even if they do it for one year for the 40 percent and obviously not all 40 percent are going to come forward, uh, they will have enough grain for six to six months to one year. So I think that is one very important thing. And actually, some states have started inching towards that. I mean, they're not going towards universal, really, but they are trying to expand. So Delhi is one example and Orissa and Chhattisgarh are the other two examples where new ration cards have already been issued in the past five weeks. I think many more states need to do that. But the center needs to loosen its purse. (laughs) They are unwilling to release this grain because the minute they release the grain, it will show up as food subsidy in the balance sheet of the government. And they're worried about that fiscal deficit uh, ballooning. So that's one thing. The second thing is NREG employment. I think it can still play a very important role. I do worry that people themselves may be concerned about going and working at these work sites because, like you said, of the fear of uh, spread of the virus and infection. Um, But I feel that in many rural areas, it may still be... uh, they may be green zones still, and so it may be safe. And especially with masks, um, and you know, I I I feel it may be a possibility still. What I had actually proposed initially, like in the last week of March, was that for the coming three months, when there's still this fear of uh, viral infection, the government should just give free cash to NREG workers, 10 days of wages per family that has a job card. 
uh, and that works out to about 28,000 crores per month. Yeah, there are 14 crore families that have a job card and if you give 2,000 rupees per month to them, then it works out to 28,000 crores per month. So I feel that just like we are worried about going to work, they may be also worried about going to work in these situations and we should give them free cash. Uh, and then maybe after that, open up the work sites so that they can go and work. I wasn't proposing it at that time as an advance that, you know, you pay now and get them to work later. I was just saying no free cash, uh, which is what the government has done, but it has done it for female Jandhan Yojana uh, account holders. The problem with that is that these, like, you know, the other day on Twitter, we just asked, like, do you know anyone who's got Jandhan Yojana money? And would you believe it that there were four responses just like that? So the Jandhan Yojana accounts are not necessarily poor people. Many of them might be poor people, but they're not necessarily poor people. And then there might be more than one female Jandhan Yojana account holder within the family. So you'll be giving twice to one family and nothing to others and so on. Uh, and then what, what you asked about social distancing and what is the possibility, I think some people are also proposing that um, more agricultural activities uh, be allowed as NREG works. I'm, I'm hesitant. You know, this has been said in the past, but I'm, I'm still a bit hesitant uh, to allow that because that is basically subsidizing larger farmers. And... On the actual mechanics of it, I think somebody who is actually on the ground is much better placed to come up with these kinds of systems. I want to come back to the question of uh, cash transfers and and what is the best way of actually um, you know getting that to the hands of into the hands of the people at this point of time. But just one quick uh, follow up question as far as the PDS story is concerned. Now, as you said, you know we are sitting on top of these massive buffer stocks, but we are also at the cusp of another harvest. So, what exactly do you think that means in terms of our ability to stock food to release them through PDS channels? The second question that I wanted to uh, ask in this concern is about, you know, whether there is a case to be made uh, building on this experience of some kind of portability of your PDS entitlements, right, which is uh, at this point of time not available. Right. So, um, in fact, what you say about, you know, the coming harvest of wheat, of the wheat crop, that it reinforces the uh, the rationale for releasing more grain through the PDS for people who don't have access to it, right? Sure. Just a few weeks ago, Mr. Paswan, who's the food minister, gave an interview where he said that the storage has become a huge headache for them. So on the one hand, they are crying about these huge stocks and, you know, and the costs associated uh, with storing it. In the monsoon rain, there is a real possibility to start rotting because I don't think they have capacity to store that much. So I think they really, and right now when the trains are free, they should use the rakes now to get the grain across the country from Punjab, Haryana, where a lot of the stock is sitting, but also in other states. You know, even the Supreme Court recently said that to the central government that they should consider portability as a temporary measure. Now, see, many migrant workers, when they go to the city, they go alone. Yeah? Many of their family members stay back. Right. So they don't take their ration card to the city because they know their family will use it back home. 
Yeah. So even if you had a portable system today, you it would have been useless for the workers who are stuck in the cities unless you move to a system where each person carries his or her own ration card, which only, I, as far as I know, only West Bengal has that kind of system, an individual ration card system. So portability, I don't think, is a solution to the problem of migrants in which context it, it is being discussed today. One very interesting thing that's happened in this crisis is that a lot of people who used to be part of the choir that said cash transfers and UBI, etc., have come to appreciate the value of the PDS, which is really what is saving people's lives today. Um, so I think that this move to portability is seen by some as a stepping stone towards dismantling the PDS eventually and moving to cash transfers. And I hope that the skeptics of the PDS system will today understand and also, I mean, they were, some of them have already started writing uh, in favor and, you know, not in favor, but at least appreciating what the PDS has done in this crisis, even though they were uh, in UP two years very much opposed to having the PDS as part of the National Food Security Act. And not just the PDS, but even things like community kitchens, right? I mean, because it's the combination of that. So in November, I had written uh, about this. I said, if one really cares about migrants, then one should be pushing very hard for community kitchens because these really work well uh, wherever they have been initiated. So, of course, Tamil Nadu was the first one to start with Amma's canteens. And then Karnataka kind of made a half-hearted attempt with the Indira canteens, but seems they're not working very well right now. But states like Kerala were quickly able to ramp up community kitchens where I think they're making parcels for people to take home, which is not a bad thing because at this time you don't want people to crowd in uh, public spaces, but even in rural Jharkhand, uh, friends are reporting that these community kitchens are running and lots of destitute people, especially the elderly, are coming to eat there and it's generating employment. So initially in that last week of March when I wrote, one of the things I said is that you open up schools as shelters for these migrant workers, give them grain and let them run self-managed community kitchen. You know, they can come up with a roster and if they're in school, schools also have uh, kitchen facilities, right? Because they were cooking midday meals uh, before. So they have utensils, they have the infrastructure. So obviously this is a crisis which is continuing and it it is going to take a period of several months before we reach anything approaching a semblance of normality. But uh, I was just wondering if we could wrap up by getting some sense from you on what kinds of fissures in our welfare architecture has this crisis really put a spotlight on you know what are the kinds of things that it has shown us uh, are creaking and don't really work and what aspects of our welfare architecture do we really need to beef up going forward you've spoken about a few things but i think if we take a kind of a broader view of the architecture as a whole uh, what kinds of uh, areas do you think we need to be focusing on? Because obviously, you know, there is the case to be made for increased outlay in terms of health, etc. But I'm also interested in understanding the physical and human infrastructure uh, around the various kinds of welfare systems that we have in place. Uh, one of the things that really bothers me is that from the UPA two years, both the PDS and the NREG, which really are the backbone as far as rural areas are concerned of any kind of social protection, both have become very technocratic. Uh, and I want to also say that you know, when we question 
when we when we say it's technocratic, it doesn't mean we're against technology. Uh, we're against technocracy, and both programs have suffered immensely from this. And in both of them, this technocratic aspect has come primarily because of the push on Aadhaar. So one thing that, again, you know, like I said, if health becomes a huge priority going forward, if labor rights become fashionable to talk about again uh, going forward, I think that this disjunking Aadhaar, uh, if ever there was a time, this is the time because it is such created so many barriers for poor people to access their rights. These are legal rights. And the whole narrative is that Aadhaar has saved money. Yeah, it may have saved money, but it saved money by knocking off genuine beneficiaries from the roles both of NREGA uh, job card list and the PTS ration card list. And then on top of that, so, so you know, if you think about it as a hurdle race, initially, Getting a ration card was a hurdle race. Okay, I'm not denying that everything was hunky dory. I'm not saying that everything was hunky dory. Uh, but the person had to find out that there is such a scheme, whether they're eligible or not. Then they had to apply for it, make sure that their application is accepted and if they have to pay bribes and so on and so forth. And then finally, they would reach the finishing line where they would get a ration card. Now with Aadhaar, what's happened is that you they've added three more hurdles between the person and the finishing line. So first that person has to get an Aadhaar number, then they have to link their Aadhaar number, and then finally at the point of buying their grain, they have to do biometric authentication. And if it fails, it's not my fault, right? It would be because the signal failed or because the biometric that was captured at the time of enrollment doesn't matter my biometric right now. And for no fault of my own, I'm the one who's being denied my grade. So today, again, this even now in rural areas, we're getting these reports of people being turned back because of other related reasons. Uh, some states are adopting a more lenient policy, thankfully, now but the pressure is really coming from the central government. See, in UPA2, they introduced something called the e-master roll, electronic master roll. What is the master roll? It's an attendance sheet. And earlier, they used to just issue uniquely numbered master roll attendance sheets to the Gram Panchayats. Anyone who came to show up for work, his or her name would be recorded there along with the attendance and it would be submitted back, back to the block office for processing their payment. In UP2, they introduced e-master rolls, don't ask why, and they said now only if you have applied beforehand and your application has been entered at the block level by the computer data entry operator, then there will be a pre-printed sheet with your name on it and only those whose names are on it can work at the work site. That accomplished nothing because people found a workaround for this. They would create backdated um, master rules. Uh, but in fact, what it did is it knocked out access to work for many people. So people who would show up would be turned back because now there, there was no possibility. So I think, again, right now in this crisis, they should revert to that old system where you generate uniquely numbered uh, uh, master rules by the system. So that much technology is good, but keep them blank and let people show up at the work sites and add their names, even if they come on the fifth day of the week. It doesn't matter. Mark them absent for the first five days and let them continue to work.
Yeah, sure. And in any case, I think the uh, one of the things which has happened in the current crisis is that it's once again put these kinds of questions about uh, security versus privacy or liberty, etc., on the map in a fairly serious way, right? So hopefully, yes. as we come out of this crisis, you know, uh, as you're saying, we'll have a wider discussion on many aspects that you've spoken about today, uh, and have a more sustained discussion on the kind of trade-offs and between various kinds of objectives that we want to pursue with our public policy, public infrastructure. Uh, and including infrastructure of the, at, at the most important level, which is at the human level. So, uh, Ritika Kira, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Interpreting India. Stay safe and don't forget to wash your hands. For more information about the podcast and the production team, you can follow us on social media and visit our webpage. page.